Hello and welcome to the NFL 100 show from Gridiron, a brand new show for this season, the 100th season of the NFL, when we go through the history, the potted course, taking some of the fixtures from each week's schedule and expanding on why they are historically significant. This week we're going to look at the Jacksonville Jaguars who face the Denver Broncos this week and we're going to look at not only them as an expansion team, but just exactly how all current 32 NFL teams entered the league. We'll be hearing from Jeff Lagerman, we'll be hearing from Ron Wolf. all coming up here on the NFL 100 show. So it's me, Will Gavin, as always, Matthew Sherry alongside me for this one. Some really good response to these shows so far, Sherry. I'm really enjoying doing them. I feel like even though I've watched a lot of documentaries, read quite a few books, with you doing all the research you've done for your book, I'm learning something every week as well. Well, that's the idea. You're kind of the guinea pig and can tell me when things are stupid. We can edit them out and hopefully the product the listeners get is a good one. So this week we're going to be talking about how these teams came into the league. A bit of a different look at it off the basis of the fact that the Jags are playing the Broncos uh, who in the second year of their existence they faced uh, in the AFC divisional round game and won as massive underdogs. But let's go from the very earliest years and look at the teams from the early years of the NFL who kind of still exist today and those that don't. Yeah, I mean, so we're going to endeavour to tell you the, the the brief history of all 32 teams in this episode. So, let's start at the beginning. Two teams currently in the NFL were there at the start. Chicago Bears and the Arizona Cardinals. Now, funnily enough, the Arizona Cardinals were the Chicago Cardinals in the first year. <laughs> the Chicago Bears were actually called the Decatur Staleys. They became the Chicago Staleys in their second year. And then they became the Chicago Bears in the third year. Now, the Arizona Cardinals, of course, were the Chicago Cardinals, the St. Louis Cardinals, the Los Angeles Cardinals, and now are the Arizona Cardinals. So there's those teams. The next, I guess, more significant one is the Packers, who come around the year later in 1921. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about some significant teams in the early years that you may not necessarily have heard of. Will, me and you were recently in Providence. Now, I think I told you while we were there, the Providence Steamroller in the 20s were quite a famous pro squad who came into the NFL, won a title in 1928. Interesting fact, two interesting facts. They played in the NFL's first ever night game, and they're the last NFL team to win the title who are no longer in the NFL. Nice little fact for you there. I love it. There's There's some other interesting ones. The Pottsville Maroons. Now, I was in Pennsylvania two weeks ago and realised after we, we'd gone past that we were five minutes from Pottsville and I was absolutely gutted. So the story of Pottsville is they played one season in the NFL. There were a little power in kind of the local pro leagues. That one season in the NFL had the best, best record in the league. They were going to win the NFL in that season, but there was a a game organised in the local area by another big team from that era called the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets. And they organised a game against Notre Dame for the best team in Pennsylvania to play Notre Dame. Now, the game was played in Frankfurt's home field. When Pottsville were the best Pennsylvania team, Frankfurt complained to the league office that they were going to play that game on the same day as a Frankfurt game, which they arranged afterwards. And Pottsville were warned three times, do not play the game or you're getting expelled from the league. 
They did play the game. It was a financial failure. They were expelled from the league. And that's how the Chicago Cardinals won their first ever NFL title. And <laughs> they didn't even accept it at first. But the Cardinals have two NFL titles in 100 seasons now. And one of them was won by default. little fact for you. There. Yeah, that's great. That is <laughs> so good. Again, I learned but, something already. But the, the thing is, you know, the interesting part is, so I would say the other big team who come around in this era is the Giants, who are mid-20s. And they were the New York Giants from the start. Uh, they were actually a reboot of a team called the Brickley Giants with, with a different owner in Tim Mara, who was a bookmaker, which was a legal profession at the time in the US. So they're, in, they're kind of the other big one in the 20s. But the interesting part about the 20s is, you know, we think of NFL teams now and the amount of money they get sold for. 35 teams folded in the opening 10 years of the NFL. So there's so many other little teams where there's these daft stories. I mean, genuinely, Will, if we were around the Midwest in 1920 and we could find a ball and a field, we probably could have got in the NFL. (laughs) It's it's a real shame that we're 100 years too late. (laughs) Yeah, so we we could do it. And then I I guess the, the other interesting element from the team angle as well is... By 1927, the the numbers in the league had swelled to 22, which was just way too many for the era. Um, Now, the reason for that is that there's a player called Red Grange who came from college, got 80,000 fans to play a game in, in New York and came into the NFL briefly. And what happened was the Bears, who he played for, for like the fine, the end of the 25 season, they tried to sign him permanently, but Grange wanted to set up his own team in New York. Now, Tim Mara, the Giants owner, owned all the territory in New York, so they wouldn't let them do it. So he set up a rival league, which was the first iteration of the American Football League. And what happens then is you end up, the the NFL just lets a load of teams in because they want to compete with this rival league. Red Grange's league falls after a year, and then the NFL have got just a shed load of teams. So they ended up cutting 10 teams, including, you know, some of the founder teams. So one of the most important teams in the early years was the Canton Bulldogs. Their owner, Ralph Hay, was the guy who started the NFL, essentially. It was in his automobile showroom and everything else that the league was started. So by 1927, the Canton Bulldogs and the Cleveland Bulldogs, which they were called for one year, um, had won three NFL titles since from 20 to 27. And in 27, they were kicked out of the league. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Coming, lads. I mean, you've given me talking points to ask you about, and you've just hit the first four of them beautifully. I'm not complaining. I just, you know, I, I'm just loving listening. So we should move on. So you're talking about the, the, we, the we've had the Colour 10 teams, including those founding teams. So key new teams begin to emerge into the 1930s. Yeah, I mean, a, a big thing is, that, so there was, in Pennsylvania, there was something called the Blue Laws, which meant that they couldn't play games on Sundays, and those got relaxed in the 30s. So what we start to see then is some emergence of teams who we now know in those areas. So, you know, Bert Bell kind of brought back the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets and renamed them the Philadelphia Eagles, who obviously are still the Philadelphia Eagles. And we also get the Pittsburgh Pirates come along, who... Uh, the Steelers, they were renamed, I think, in I think in 1940. I've put that down here, but that was just from memory. Could be wrong, but I think it was 1940. Um, so, yeah, that that's the Steelers. They come about. And then the, the interesting part about those teams is they are power teams, but actually don't win a lot, I mean, in the Steelers' case, for 30 years. And it, it takes, it takes the, the Eagles until 
until post-1945 to start winning. The real power that comes in and does well immediately are the, um, are the Boston Redskins who eventually move to Washington and uh, and kind of take on the, the name that we know now. And they... They basically were good because their owner was ambitious. Um, he was also, I mean, allegedly and based on his actions, a massive, massive racist. Um, but so he brought about... <laughs> I'm not sure he's going to sue us at this point, mate. <laughs> yeah, well, George Preston Marshall is the reason that the league segregated, which it did not long after he came into the ownership circle. And, and obviously his team were the last team to then desegregate in 1960 but what he did bring to the NFL that was positive was the whole showmanship around the before games pre-game shows that a lot of those were, were his innovations a lot of the key rule changes around that time he was a big champion for and and most importantly he signed slinging Sammy Ball from college who became you know the first truly great passer in the NFL there were some good ones in the 20s but he was truly great I mean he had a one year he had a completion percentage of 70%. I think it was in 1945, potentially. And it wasn't broken until 1970. And the next best was about 45% that season, which tells you how good Sammy Ball was. So what we start to get at that point is this real power structure of teams. You know, there's there was a spell where 19 of the first 20 NFL title games were won by either the Bears, the Packers, the Giants, or the Redskins. Now, you have that. And then you, that brings us to one of the other interesting clubs around that time, which is a team called the Portsmouth Spartans. Now, nobody will have heard of them at this point, but they were a really important team. They should have won an NFL title uh, the year Green Bay won their third in a row. But the way scheduling worked in those days, you basically made it up as you went along. So, Curly Lambeau, the, the Packers had the best record in the league. It basically wrapped up the title. But... Their last two games were against Chicago and the Spartans. And if they lost both, they had they wouldn't have won the title. So they lost to the Bears and Lambeau cancelled the game against the Portsmouth <laughs> Spartans. <laughs> oh, so uh, when they claim to be title town, at least exactly. one of them is by default, which is a, but, as a Patriots fan you love. It came back to bite them on the behind the next season because the next year... The same situation manifested itself again, but they weren't allowed to cancel the games. And they lost at the end of the year to both the Bears and Portsmouth. Now, the records were such that in the modern day, the Packers would have won a fourth title in a row, which no team has ever done. But in those days, a tie didn't count as half a win. So it was just literally done on winning percentage, which meant the Portsmouth and Chicago had the best winning percentage. And they played in the first ever indoor game. Now, that indoor game ultimately was on an 80-yard field, which led to huge rule changes. So they had to bring the ball in. They used to start plays one yard in from the sideline that went out of bounds. So after that game, during that game, because there were boards around the, the, the stadium because it was indoor, they had to bring it in 10 yards. So they started doing that all the time. And the, and the game ended really controversially. You can read all this in a book that's out next year. Uh, and that leads to them starting rules that open up the passing game and things like that. So, But the Spartans are an important team because they eventually uh, bought and become the Detroit Lions, who win their, I said, 19 of 20 of the first 20 titles in the championship game era won by those four teams. The one exception, the Detroit Lions. You can, you can, you can win it. 
Detroit. You can win championships. It's been proven. You just have to be, you know, different name and somewhere else and everything else. Uh, so uh, we also get uh, in that period the AAFC merger, uh, the uh, All-American Football Conference. Correct. Yeah, look yeah, at that. I mean, a merger is... is <laughs> Hostile is, takeover? I mean, it, no, it, it, it's not a merger. It's a merger in name. What actually happened is, you know, the AFC was a load of guys who had been rejected for NFL to own NFL teams who bound together and started their own league. It's interesting, you know, in the 20s that it took anybody, in the 40s they probably never took enough teams. So the AFC sets up. They create this big splash in Ohio by getting Paul Brown, who was a local coaching legend, to coach this Cleveland team that becomes the Cleveland Browns. So that's where they come from. And, you know, Paul Brown's team is immediately amazing. They dominate the AFC for four seasons, win every year, a perfect season in 1948. And and that ruins the league. You know, the, the AFC thought they were, they were building something around the Cleveland Browns, but they were too good for everybody else. So it kind of ruined the league. So they eventually have to broker this piece with the NFL, who absorbed three of their teams. They absorbed the Cleveland Browns, the San Francisco 49ers, Big Willie, mm-hmm. and... Who were also, to be fair, if there was another team in the AFC who at least captivated the imagination, captured the imagination, it was it was the 49ers. A little bit and, like they are at three and this season. Absolutely, buddy. And, I am. Um, I may have had a few drinks the other night and ordered myself uh, a, a massively overpriced uh, piece of San Francisco merchandise, which I'll send you a WhatsApp of later and maybe tweet a photo of. <laughs> I look forward to that. And. Uh, <laughs> The, the third team with the Baltimore Colts. Little interesting side story on this. Uh, the first game of the season with the Browns in the new league, um, Bert Bell arranged for the Browns to play the Eagles, who were two-time NFL champions and going for three in a row. The Browns destroyed them in that opening game when everybody in the NFL had said, your teams aren't going to come in here and do anything. And um, Gracie Neal, the Browns coach after the game, was saying, look, they're a great team, but, you know, Paul Brown, he might as well be a basketball team because all he ever does is put the ball in the air. Those two teams met each other later in the season and the Browns beat the Eagles again without throwing a single pass, which is just one of the great, like, FU moments in sporting history. And then we get another one later in the season because the Browns win the NFL title. And then, you know, ultimately, the Baltimore Colts, come and go so they come into the nfl they go and then the city of baltimore complains and bert bell says to them who was the commissioner at the time sell fifteen thousand season tickets by this date and you can have your team back the baltimore colts do that and become themselves one of the most significant teams of the next 10 15 years and and the other interesting teams i guess are probably the Brooklyn Dodgers who defected to the AFC, AFC when it first started. And then you get this this team, once the merger happens, called the New York Yanks, who are in the NFL, who become the Dallas Texans. And we mentioned them on last week's show. They last one season, and that is the last team that went extinct in NFL history. So everything out from this point onwards 
is going to be teams currently in the NFL. I've been ticking them off as we go along to make sure that we hit every single one of them, Sherry. Uh, don't, we, we, coming up, when we start to talk about expansion teams, we'll hear from Ron Wolf. Uh, when we're talking about the, the 76 and the Bucks and the Seahawks, and we'll hear from Jeff Lagerman as well. Um, then, obviously, we get the actual AFL-NFL merger happening, and that's when a lot of the teams that we now know become part of the NFL machine. Yeah, it is. I mean, this was this was the best of the rival leagues. You know, the rivalry lasts for kind of six, seven seasons before they start to broker a merger. But we start to see these teams emerge in both leagues because of the AFL. You know, it bolstered the NFL numbers as well. So we mentioned last week that the creation of a team in Dallas um, in the AFL led to the Dallas Cowboys. So they come into the league. You know, you've got the Minnesota Vikings who... Vikings fans, you are the disgrace of this story. I've got to tell you that. <laughs> you were part of the AFL, and the NFL tried to get Lamar Hunt not to start his AFL and actually have an NFL team, as I also mentioned last week. He said no because he was loyal to the other guys. The Minnesota Vikings owners never. They decided to defect on the day of the AFL draft. Nice work, guys. So the NFL get the Minnesota Vikings as well. And then we start to see these other teams who we now know are synonymous with NFL football in the AFL. The Boston Patriots, who become the New England Patriots. The Buffalo Bills, who are the Buffalo Bills. The Houston Texans. No, the Houston Oilers, sorry. Who be- oh, sorry, sorry to anyone who's an old Oilers fan. I feel terrible for that. The Houston Oilers, who become the Tennessee Titans. Warren Moon's going to be on to us in a big way. He could be, absolutely. The New York Titans, who become the New York Jets a few years later. The Denver Broncos. The Dallas Texans, who become the Kansas City Chiefs. The Oakland Raiders, who become the Los Angeles Raiders and then back to being the Oakland Raiders and will soon be the Las Vegas Raiders. And the Los Angeles Chargers, who spend a year in Los Angeles, go to San Diego, think they have a home for life, and then ridiculously move back to become the Los Angeles Chargers that they're known as today. Brilliant. Brilliant stuff. Um, Okay, so non-expansion teams that I haven't deleted off here that you may have mentioned, but, but I may have missed. Go on. Atlanta in 1966 in the NFL as an expansion team. That's the with the Atlanta Falcons from the start. The Miami Dolphins in the AFL the same year. Then the merger gets announced and they add another expansion team, which is the New Orleans Saints. And in that's in 67. And then in 68, Paul Brown is gone from Cleveland at this point, but gets his expansion team, which is the Cincinnati Bengals. And that, I think, should be 26 teams crossed off the list. So, right, let me just double check. I know we've done the Cowboys and the Giants. Uh, the only one that I've got here that I didn't cross off and didn't hear you mention was the Rams. But you probably did. I just missed No, it. I never. No, they were one of the big teams in the 30s the, the, and the 40s, the, the Cleveland Rams, who were actually the NFL champions as the Cleveland Rams in 45 and then moved to Los Angeles in 46 and then St. Louis and then back to Los Angeles. So, yeah. I didn't mention that. Beautiful. There we go. We've managed to tick off everyone and you Ram fans got to find out a tiny bit about your history. So we are now on to the modern day expansion teams, those who we we consider the expansion teams. Let's start off then in 1976 when we were introduced to the league, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Seattle Seahawks. You know, up until 1970, it is just so fragmented. You've got... These rival leagues who come in at a rate of every 15 years and 
it's only after that when you've got this equal footing of 26 teams that we start to see the NFL properly via the structure that we know it has today. And all I've done since then is added to that. Now, it's been complicated by relocations, which we'll probably do a separate pod on at some point. But yeah, some of these Cleveland Browns who we've mentioned and now the Baltimore Ravens, we'll explain all that in a second. But yeah, the the proper expansion teams for me start in 76. And, and they start with the Seattle Seahawks and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, the interesting thing about this era in expansion teams is, is imagine how difficult it is. You know, there's no free agency window for a starting point. There's no player pool, which they would eventually create for later expansions as well. So you're literally starting from scratch with just the draft as a means of furnishing and building a roster from scratch. And, you know, teams made mistakes with personnel guys, as we're about to find out, because one of the guys who was tasked with building an expansion team was a guy who'd had a very successful run with Al Davis as his right-hand man in Auckland and later built his whole Hall of Fame legacy with the Green Bay Packers. But he started as the general manager of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and that's Ron Wolf. How difficult was running an expansion team in that era? Because it, it, if from looking back, you guys didn't have the same luxuries afforded to you that you know the Jaguars and, and Panthers would have down the line oh, in terms yeah. of the player pool. We, we didn't. We didn't. I, and uh, and I, I think our record showed that. We, we had a problem. There's no question about that. We had, uh, uh, first of all, uh, I didn't, I couldn't find a quarterback my uh, two years I was down there. I, I was exhausted trying to find a quarterback because I believe that in order to be successful in a game of professional football, it starts with the quarterback, and interestingly, that two those two years, there was only one quarterback that came out of the draft or free agency, or came in the league as a free agent, who was worth anything at all, and his name was Steve DeBerg. Uh, but I couldn't get it done, and then we, you know, we went two and twenty-six. Uh, but I'll say this: the foundation. It's the first expansion team in the history of the National Football League that in four years was playing in a championship game yeah. for a title. That had never happened before. That didn't happen under guys like Paul Brown and, and all people of that ilk. So we laid a pretty good foundation. But, uh, you know, when you're as bad as as the Buccaneers were early from a record standpoint, someone has to go and I was the one that had to go. Fill the trolley with your favourite brands on rollback at Asda. A 38-pack of Fairy Non-Bio Capsules was £8.50, now £5.75. And Lenore Gold Fabric Conditioner was £4, now £2.50. Big brands, small prices. Don't compromise. Asda. Save money, live better. Selected stores subject to availability. Lenore, 1.925 litres. Ends 18th of March. Ron Wolfe, Hall of Famer, former Packers general manager... Former right-hand manager said to Al Dave with the Raiders, but significantly to our conversation today, the man who came in in 76 to run the Tampa Bay Buccaneers front office. It wasn't necessarily easy. It, it, it often isn't for expansion teams. But the next two we get onto after the Bucks and the Seahawks seem to hit the ground running. Yeah, they do. I mean, and 
And, and what Ron alludes to in the audio there is, you know, as as 20 years later, which is when the next one's happened in 96, it's a lot easier to build a team quickly. And Wolf did really well. I mean, they, they fired him and then we're in, the, we're in the NFC title game a year later. I mean, they made a big mistake in when they fired him. But... In '96, it's 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 a lot. In '95, sorry, it's a lot different to that. And you know, the Panthers and the Jaguars have a have a chance from the start. And 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 good kind of NFL guys in the buildings at each. You know, the Panthers started with um, with Bill Paulian, who had obviously had a really successful run in Buffalo at that point, and and would go on to the Indianapolis Colts a year later. But the Jacksonville Jaguars, for them, it's all about you know Tom Coughlin. He was. He was the Jaguars, and they hit the ground running to an incredible extent. I mean, had a difficult first season, but then the next year are in the AFC Championship game, and the Panthers themselves were in the NFC Championship game, which is which is astonishing to think of, really. Yeah, uh, yeah undoubtedly, but they not only... yeah, Well, OK, so Coughlin coming in and, and being the man, which is funny because obviously so many people associate him with the Giants... It's the way those expansion teams were built at that period, which I think is really interesting. The way the drafts work, etc., is some would find it convoluted. I think that it gave them the best opportunity to hit the ground running. So yes, it's Coughlin, but they were also given those opportunities. Yeah, there were. Yeah, I mean, I think the NFL had learned from 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 earlier instances. They obviously had free agency now, which massively helped. But you know, it's not a good look when I think Wolf mentioned that the Buccaneers went two and twenty six. I mean, that's insane, isn't it? There's no mm-hmm. competitiveness. I mean, it's like watching the, the modern-day Miami Dolphins, for Christ's sake. Um, so, so yeah, and and but, but I think the Jacksonville story to me is the one that's most captivating because in 96, it just felt like something special happened. So let's let's talk to, to Jeff Lagerman and, and let him tell the story of this unlikely route to an AFC title game and, and climax them with this absolutely insane victory over the Super Bowl favourites in the Denver Broncos and the number one seeds in the AFC. Well, I, I was at a point in my career where I was six years in with the New York Jets and never had had a winning season, believe it or not, with the New York Jets. So I, I needed something to kind of get some of the fun and the excitement back in playing the game of football. And what better way or place to do that than an expansion franchise in a new city? And uh, the the citizens of Jacksonville, the people of Jacksonville, were starving for football. And a lot of times it didn't seem to matter whether we won or lost. They were just so thrilled to have a football team. And so so with, with the newness of, of the franchise and the excitement of the fan base, packed stadium, loud stadium, walking around the streets, people would recognize you and go, oh, my gosh, you're a Jaguar. I mean, it... I mean, you don't play the game for recognition, but you get excited about something that people appreciate and get excited about as well. So that brought the fun back for me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I guess the, the, the fun element as well, you say you never had a winning season in New York, but, I mean, you guys got to the playoffs in, in, in your second year, which seems incredible. But, I mean, just what was it like as an expansion team in that era? Because I know certainly, I spoke to Ron Wolf actually, a, a, a week or so ago, and, and when he when he was at the Buccaneers in the seventies, it was it was a lot more difficult than it was in the nineties. So can you just talk about kind of what it was like as an expansion team then, and some of the things that the league put into place to 
to make it easier for, for those teams? Yeah, well, I mean, first and foremost, you had the opportunity with free agency, which is much different than previous expansion teams in the National Football League. So we had we had free agency, which allowed a guy like me, who uh, was a good football player for the Jaguars, to to bid for my services, just like the Carolina Panthers did. You know, they could have bid for my services as well. So the ability to acquire immediate starting caliber talent was certainly a big difference with the expansion year of 1995. But then on top of that, both us, the Jaguars, and the Carolina Panthers both had multiple picks in the first round. I mean, we got Tony Baselli in the first round, who is, you know, a, a Hall of Fame type player. And people forget that while we had another first-round pick that year, too, which was running back James Stewart, who was a really good, solid running back for us for a number of years. So so we had that luxury of two picks in every round. We had free agency. Um, and we had uh, uh, the cap. You know, So, I mean, we could go out and you know spend money up to the cap. And then I think that's one of the reasons why going to an expansion team appealed to me because I knew that it wasn't going to be a situation like Ron Wolf had with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to where you, you, it's just going to take time to build a roster. And I knew that in Jacksonville, then in a couple of years, I thought that we could build a roster. Now, I don't think, or I didn't think at the time that we would be in a conference championship game in year two. But I knew that, look, with a little bit of luck, we would we would be competing for a playoff spot in year three. But then, obviously, the, uh, the timetable was moved up in the year two, which was incredible, which made the second year of the franchise, 1996, it made it almost like a dream, you know, and a dream come true. How, how important was, you know, he was a young guy at the time, Coach Coughlin, but how important was he in, in that process as well, that this Bill Parcells disciple who... You know, he, he took the league by storm, didn't he, in, in, for those for those few years in Jacksonville? He did, and, and he was everything to the franchise. He, were, he literally, he would choose the paint color in the hallway to who the players were, to what the strategy would be on game day, to what clothes we wore for workouts. I mean, that's, he, was, he was the czar of the Jacksonville Jaguars and whatever he said went. And that was nice in a lot of ways for, for me, because you knew that you wouldn't have a lot of problems to deal with as a leader of a football team, that the coach would cast out any kind of problems that he had. Uh, But then also if you needed something done, because he was the, the head of everything. If there was something that we needed as a football team to get better, any kind of resource, we would get it. And that was a, certainly a, a nice situation to be in when we had all the support that we possibly could need from Tom Coughlin. And, and a lot of people didn't like him and because he was uh, – it was a little bit abrasive, but for as many people that didn't like him personally, the one thing I think that I think players all appreciated about him is that they had great respect for him because he was so committed to building a winner. Yeah, and, and you know, later in his career with the Giants, I, I think the hallmark of the two Super Bowl teams he built was was how these teams worked through the season, you know, worked through some kinks, and then they got to the end of the season and they just 
exploded you know it just it just all all the pieces came together and you know looking back it felt like that's what happened with you guys I mean you won the that second season you, you go on to win the last five games in in 96 but you know these aren't 40 to 10 blowouts you guys are and kind of doing what championship teams do and, and coming out on top in these close fought overtime games, three point games. I mean, what was it like as the momentum was building over over the end of that nineteen ninety six regular season? Uh, it was. Uh, I think the the thing that made ninety six possible is that we didn't have any expectations attached to us for the season. So. Uh, I think a lot of teams uh, if that were in that situation that we were in, which we weren't very good, I think we were four and seven, and we were able to rattle off you know, five consecutive wins to end the season and to to be to gain eligibility to get in the playoffs. If we were another team that had the expectations of, oh, okay, you know what, you, you guys are expected to be eight wins or ten wins on the season, then I think the pressure of not reaching or being who everybody thought we were might have overcome us. But because we were a second-year expansion team with no expectations attached to us, we didn't play very well at the beginning of the year. We had a really nice stretch in October. Uh, I think it just allowed people to be stress-free and to play uh, freely. And uh, and then we just started worrying about our level of play, not what others thought of us on the outside. And then all of a sudden we started making a play here and a play there and, and then stacking plays on top of one another. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, before we even we even really wake up, all of a sudden we're on a roll. <laughs> yeah. and, and we didn't even really realize it. And that's exciting because... Uh, when you're when you're not worried about where you are and you're just living in the moment, so to speak, and you hear coaches all the time talk about this phrase, take it one game at a time, that's what we were doing because we didn't have any expectation of beyond one game at a time or what we would be at the end of the rainbow because all we knew is that we had to play 16 games and we were trying to get a little bit better because we didn't think that we were going to be in the playoffs. We just wanted to get better so that maybe the third year we could be in the playoffs. And the next thing you know, bam, we're in the playoffs. And then once we got in the playoffs, it was like, holy shit, let's just have some fun. You know, and then when you go into the playoffs with no expectation again, and the pressure is on everybody else because everybody else can't lose to an expansion team in their second year, yeah, I mean, we we're in great position. Yeah, and, and I guess also, you know, I always look for the teams in the playoffs now who were, were battle-hardened, and it, it felt like when you got to that, you know, the fourth quarter of that Buffalo game, that all that experience at the end of the regular season really, really seemed to pay off against Buffalo towards the end of that game. Yeah, that, and then also I think the mental toughness of our football team. In 1995, I and mean, we didn't have enough talent to win the games that we did win, but we did because we were we were a mentally tough and a physically tough football team, and due in large part to what the head coach had put us through. And 1996 was no different. We still were an incredibly tough mental, mentally and physically football team. And when we got into a situation like that game in Buffalo, it didn't matter that uh, that we might have been down a little bit. I mean, we were we were tough enough where we were going to fight through it and. And then I, I, I say that that game swung in large part to the performance of a couple guys. You know, on offense, Tony Baselli was was just beating up Bruce Smith. 
Natron Means was running the football, and we were more physical than the Buffalo Bills. And then Clyde Simmons made uh, an interception of Jim Kelly that we take in, score with. And, I mean, those those are huge game, momentum-changing type of performances that allow football teams to win, and without them, we wouldn't have won. Yeah, and, and then obviously, you know, we get to that defining game against Denver, which which I guess is still probably the most significant, certainly, victory in, in franchise history. I mean, you know, what was the feeling like going into that game? Because you mentioned that you guys, you know, you, you were underdogs a lot of the time, but in truth at that time, nobody was thinking about the Jaguars, well, it was all about John Elway and, and whether he could ever win a championship. Right, and... And they were the number one seed in the AFC. They had had a bye. Uh, they were the, the preseason picks to win the Super Bowl. I mean, everything about that game said there's no way that the Jaguars can beat the Denver Broncos. And uh, and we didn't let any of that deter us. I mean, we, I'm sure that we had, as individuals, some doubts going into that game as to whether or not we could beat this football team that was incredibly good in the regular season. I want to say they were 15-1 and one or 14-2 and two to close the season out. And I'll never forget the morning of the AFC title game. We were in Denver. We wake up in the hotel. It's a little bit of a late kickoff game to where, you know, you don't have to wake up and, and drink coffee, eat a meal, and go to the stadium. You've got a little bit of time uh, to wake up, have breakfast, and read the newspaper. And then after that, you know, lounge around for a little bit before you go to the pregame meal. Well, we're kind of hanging out, having coffee, and then at the breakfast table and pick up the newspaper and there's an article by Woody Page, who's a local columnist in Denver, and he's essentially ridiculing our football team. He's uh, calling the Jaguars the Jaguars. He is talking about how we don't have any good players and that um, uh, there's no way that we can beat the Denver Broncos. And, and so I'll never forget, I took the article and I started – because there were certain players on our football team that were pointed out as and being ridiculed in the in the article, and I went around. And I showed it to every one of our players. I said, "Look, look, this is what people think of us, you know." And we've got an opportunity to do something about it today. So, uh, so let's do something about it. And uh, and I'm not saying that one newspaper writer's article ended up giving us the motivation to win, but the man sure didn't hurt. You know, it's it's kind of like uh, gave gave us a big spoon to stir the pot, so to speak, and give us just a little bit of an extra edge and maybe a little bit of extra motivation on that that game morning. Yeah, what what fascinated me as well, looking back at the game itself, is I always think that you guys, because you were kind of ahead at the end of the in in the kind of the third quarter, that you guys were kind of ahead throughout the game. I, I didn't realize that you'd. You, you ended the first quarter twelve nothing behind, and and really at that point the game is going to the anticipated script. Was there anything that you guys did to to rally in that second quarter to 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 enter the break ahead? Well, I think one is that defensively we we uh, we tightened up a little bit, and, and we didn't have a ton of stars on defense, but we tightened up a little bit, played better. And then, you know, just like in the, the playoff game against the Buffalo Bills, you had a star with Natron Means and Tony Baselli. Well, the star of this game, I thought, was Mark Brunel. Yeah. With, he, he made things happen with his legs. 
Uh, I'll never forget seeing the frustrated look on linebacker Bill Romanowski's face when Mark Brunel is scrambling up and down the field, when Mark is making that beautiful throw in the back of the end zone to Jimmy Smith. I mean, this game was, was I don't want to say it was the coming out party, but man, it, it sure was. It sure was a game in which Mark Brunel could have uh, put his name on it and say, here's what I'm all about. And everybody in the league ought to take notice because uh, that was a, a marvelous performance by Mark Brunel, one of the best I've ever seen by a quarterback in the playoffs. Was there a point in the game where you started to realize almost that Denver had realized we're in a little bit of trouble here? And, you know, you mentioned nobody wanted to lose to the, to the second-year expansion team and certainly not the number one seed in Super Bowl favorites didn't want to was that was there a point in the game when you looked into their eyes and thought that they know they're in trouble here and they and they started throwing the ball a lot we knew we were like all right we're we're good we've got them completely out of their game when their defense looked incredibly winded and they had no answer for Jimmy, and they had no answer for the legs of Mark. But I mean, you could just see it in their eyes when when Bill Romanowski, the linebacker, and Bill Romanowski was he'd won a few Super Bowls. He was not like, he was he's kind of the heart, and he was the mind of that Denver Broncos defense. When you saw him being so frustrated and angry about the plays that the Jaguars' offense were making against his defense, you knew you had him. One of the coolest moments after we beat the Broncos out there is you know, we come home, and the previous week we had landed in Jacksonville after beating the Buffalo Bills, and the fans were lining the road from the airport all the way back to Jacksonville, beeping their horns and celebrating with everybody. Well, after that became nearly a, uh, a dangerous situation because all these people were in the street, yeah. With moving buses and all that, alcohol was involved. So this <laughs> next week, they ended up telling the fans, don't go to the airport, go to the stadium if you want to greet the team. So we're flying back to Jacksonville, and we're in this, you know, big jet airplane, and we do a, we do a flyover over the stadium. Like like a military plane would do over a football game before the game or any other athletic event, and we literally are so low in this jet airplane that when we we go over the stadium, the pilot banks, and I'll never forget. I'm sitting in the back with Baselli and Keenan McCardell and all these other guys, and we're sitting in the back, and literally you can see people's faces in the stadium from out the window of the plane, and we're like, oh my god! And there was you know. 30,000 plus, I think at that time, or 25,000 plus that were already in the stadium and more were coming. You could see lights coming from the distance. And so, I mean, that was pretty, pretty doggone cool, you know, for a guy that had never had a winning season and had one game in the playoffs to go to an expansion franchise in year two. And all of a sudden, uh, two wins in the playoffs and special moments with fans and celebrations afterward that, uh, for me, I don't know if you ever can. That will ever be duplicated because it was such a it was such a special moment in time with an expansion franchise, and we were still in the honeymoon period. 
So it was almost as if you know you get the honeymoon period magnified by a hundred because you're winning. Jeff Lagerman, an incredible story, the early Jacksonville Jaguars, particularly considering some people still don't see them as a particularly fashionable team, essentially because they, uh, essentially because they've not had a huge amount of success since those early years, and they say, well, where, what, what's this team got to offer historically? But they've got that to offer, that brilliant playoff run. It's a shame we've not seen them do it again to that significant level. I know they've had another AFC title game two years ago, but... An incredible run, particular capped off with that brilliant win over the Broncos. Yeah, and and you know that uh, the quotes from Lagerman that always get me. I've spoke to him a couple of times on it. Is you know when he talks about them flying the plane back into Jacksonville after the game and and it getting so low that he can see the faces of the thirty thousand fans in this in the stadium just to greet them off the airplane. I mean, and and I guess we we look at. People people talk negatively about that fan base, the Jaguars fan base, and say that they're not engaged. When, you know, at that time, they were hugely, hugely excited about this NFL team coming to town. And, and, and I guess probably a lot more engaged than people give them credit for. Let's uh, turn our attention then to what was to come next, which is uh, 90. Well, the best way to approach this, I guess, is going uh, with what happened with the, the we talk about with the Ravens and the Browns and what happened in around 96 with them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I say, we'll try not to do too much relocation, but this is this is an example of relocation in which a team disappears and then comes back, which is which is unique. It doesn't happen again. So, you know, the Browns have been the Browns since Paul Brown started the Browns in 1945. And then Art Medell, who'd actually been the owner for a lot of years, you know, you'd, it's not like he was a Johnny-come-lately owner. Medell had been there since the early 60s, maybe even late 50s. I think it's early 60s. And um, and and was one of the I think the thing with Medell for me looking into this I I, I always assumed he was kind of like a little bit like the like Airsay for example who was the Baltimore owner who left town where he was negatively looked at on the by the league and things like that Medell was absolutely one of the key owners from the point he got in the building onwards he paid a, I think it was four million dollars which was unheard of to buy the team in the first place and then you know he was involved in a lot of the committees he was he was a big passionate guy when it came to NFL films and heavily involved in all that and then and then yeah ripped the heart out of the t- out of the city he'd called his own for for you know nigh on 50 years and and took the took the team to Baltimore just completely out of nowhere and and the Cleveland Browns ceased to exist for for three years until they come back under under new ownership in in 1999 and leave the NFL with a bit of an imbalance truthfully because it's 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 an odd number in in 31 teams and look we will get into as we say let was we're going to hold off and we're going to get into the expansion stuff because there's a obviously the very interesting story to be told about the browns and ravens history and what happened beyond that so that's another conversation and, 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 i think and the raiders as well i mean i'm i'm speaking to Wolves, obviously, he was at the Raiders for like 25 years over two spells. I'm speaking to Amy Trask in two hours. So, oh, yeah, fantastic. we've got oh. of that stuff to come up as well. Nice. Absolutely superb. Um, and then it was, uh, it was all capped off with our final team to enter the NFL, the Houston Texans. Yeah, we'll see them in London in a, in a few weeks' time. They, they were the last ones in 2002, the newest NFL team. I'm sure older listeners will... Think only of the Houston Oilers in their hearts. But yeah, the Texans came in 2002 and now that is where we're at with the league. I'm not convinced there will be any more expansions now. I think it'll be 32 teams for for potentially the duration. 
yeah, relocation obviously has proved key with the teams in Los Angeles, etc. And if we get a team here in London, as, as the conversation that I'm sure you and I have had with many a casual NFL fan, I believe, if it ever happens, which I think there's been a lean away from in the last year, year or two. I mean, we're going to be releasing some interesting audio this week from Clark Hunt, the Chiefs Ooh. owner I spoke to <laughs> a few weeks ago. So that I think, I think for me, I wouldn't say it's groundbreaking, but it does move the... It gives you a clear insight into maybe the NFL office view that is slightly different to what we've heard before. Interesting, interesting. So, but if it does happen one day, I think it will be a move. Uh, I think that's the logical way to do it. And so you have to wait till there's a team that's suitable, really. <coughs> Chargers. Um, Sherry, always good fun. Great. Bit of a pivot on the show this week. Lagerman, excellent. Wolf, excellent. So, loving all of that. Um, obviously, go and check out the rest of our podcast network. We do have the weekly college podcast, and we have our uh, our two podcasts around the NFL in 2019 as well. Uh, big, great weekend preview already done with Ollie and Sherry and me popping up at the end to have an argument with Matt about the Broncos-Jaguars game for a brief two minutes. Uh, what have we got? Do you know what we've got coming up on this show next week? I have two options. I mean, I might put it out to a listener poll next Oh, week. I love that. two great options. We might do both. These are so good that we might do both. Um, the two options are, I'm going to give you the other two games that are interesting to me. Browns 49ers is interesting just because it's an AAFC game, you know, as we mm-hmm. mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Jets-Eagles is interesting because that was the first ever TV game. And we could get someone talking on that. I've interviewed Upton Bell, who was former Eagles owner and commissioner Bear Bell's son. But the big two are Packers-Cowboys, the oh. ice ball, oh. and Bills-Titans, Music City Miracle. I, I mean, we could do both. Yeah, I mean, I'm so I've, uh, again, to, to tell the listeners, show the listeners how the sausage is made, I've just DM'd Kevin Dyson, who was the guy who caught the yeah, Music was. City Miracle. And we've got his number anyway, so I'm pretty sure we can get in. Was it forward, Kevin? Sherry. And yeah, we've we've got Dave Robinson and Boyd Dowler talking about the ice ball. So we've covered on that. Wonderful. Sherry, always good fun. Hope everyone enjoyed it. At Gridiron on Twitter, at UK Gridiron on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the NFL 100 show. Mate, we've banged that in. to the Horse Ramble Daily where we'll be covering all of your horse needs. And there's more. Every day during the Cheltenham Festival, Betway are giving you the chance to win £50,000 in the free-to-play for-to-win game. Head to betway.com to play now. Up next, more horses. Horse, horse, horse. Horse, horse, horse. Horse, horse, horse. Full terms apply. 18 plus only. BeGambleAware.org.